<clears throat> we'll go right to uh, the scripture reading this morning. Um, the uh, the text for the message will be in uh, in John 17, uh, 17th chapter of John. <clears throat> this morning, and I don't have to tell you any verses because we're going to read all of them. Uh, 17, 1 through uh, 26. 1 through 26. And would you stand when you find your place? Uh, John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and, they, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. For whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy, have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, and that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. And they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and that the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have, whom you have gave me, may be with me where I am, and that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me, 
before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and you will declare it. I have, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do come again before your throne of grace this morning asking for your, your enablement. Lord, um, just as we're reading in this passage that it was the desire of Jesus and the goal of Jesus to honor you, so we this morning want to have that same goal before us, Lord. That's what we want our heart to be, to bring honor and glory to you in all that we do. We ask that you grant that. Father, we ask that you grant understanding of your word and use it just as the passage here says to sanctify us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Okay, so we pick up our study this morning in John 17. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. We Traditionally, we refer to um, Jesus' instruction to pray as the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I'm not going to try to <clears throat> convince you not to do that anymore or, or convince myself not to do that anymore because it's too much of a habit. But in reality, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, what's happening there is the disciples ask, Lord, teach us to pray. And so in response, you know, Jesus says, pray, um, pray in this manner, or say this when you pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so forth. And we, we have, again, traditionally referred to that as the Lord's Prayer because it comes from the Lord. I and mean, there you've got a prayer, um, a, a, what we should more properly call a, a model prayer because that's what Jesus is doing there, giving us a, a model to go by. But you, you've, you've got a prayer straight off of the lips of Jesus given to us. Pray this way or even say this when you pray. And so, again, we, we refer to that as the Lord's Prayer. But, as I mentioned, it probably more be more accurate to refer to that as the model prayer because Jesus did give it as a model <clears throat> and refer to this passage as the Lord's Prayer, because this is indeed Jesus' prayer um, that he offers right before his arrest and crucifixion. Now, he probably um, prayed more than this one prayer. <laughs> and, and in fact, I don't think this is the, 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 the prayer prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, although probably a lot of the same uh, content. But this is one that we have recorded for us. And uh, again, uh, what is fascinating about it, it's not only straight off the lips of Christ, it's straight from the heart of Christ. You know, we, we know, for example, what was on his heart immediately preceding his suffering and crucifixion um, at a time of great uh, trouble, great distress. Um, he is 
praying for, for several things. And we're going to kind of skim the surface this morning. I hope to, to come back um, in a little more detail uh, in, on some sp- specific areas. But I, I didn't really want to break it up. Uh, I wanted us to read it uh, all as one and consider it as one, this, this whole section. So, so we're just going to kind of uh, focus in this morning on, on some of the main themes that are happening here as the Lord prays. Um, and by the way, I'll, you, you probably already know this, but if you don't, I'll show you in a moment. But part of what he does here is pray for us, prays for you and I. So that's another uh, in, encouraging and, and fascinating thing about this prayer. So I want to kind of break it up, like, like I said, just as in consideration of main themes, I want to break it up into three parts here. And the first one has to do with uh, His own glorification, or you could say the glorification of the Son. And I, I think I would title this, and, and uh, in my, my own thinking, a prayer for glory. Or prayer of glory, because that's I, if you were going to just try to say, what's the main thing? What what is the what is the main thing Jesus is getting at here? What's the the main thing on his heart? It, it has to do ultimately with the glorification of the Father. But then there are means to that end, and so that's that's what he winds up um, praying about. So it's a so it's a prayer of glory with with the glory of God. In view, so I'll start again with his own glory, the glorification of the Son. And let's look at verse one again. When Jesus had spoken these words, and of course we we've been looking at this lengthy discourse in chapters fourteen through sixteen. So that's what's in view here. When Jesus had spoken these words, in other words, when he finished all that we just studied in in uh, the preceding chapters, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, "So." He's finished that discourse, and now it turns from discourse to prayer, praying to the Father. And you know, there are other cases. One, one that comes to mind is when he stood at the tomb of Lazarus, where, where Jesus would pray. In fact, that's one of the other two instances of prayer that we have in this, in this gospel uh, of Jesus praying. When he stood before the, the tomb of Lazarus, he prayed. And he even said there that he prayed not for his own benefit. I mean, he said, Father, I know you always hear me. But he prayed for the benefit of those in earshot. And I think that's what he's doing in every case. That's still what's going on here. Um, he's praying aloud for the benefit of his disciples and and. Uh, I might just add that um, I think that operates with us as well. And you can probably, everybody here can probably testify. I know I certainly can. There's many, many times I have been blessed by hearing the prayers of others, hearing a brother or a sister um, crying out to God. And, you know, in petition or in praise, um, it's, it's a blessing. And so, you know, Jesus is doing that here, and it's in part, in large part, because he's um, making his will known, the will of the Father and his own will. So as I said a moment ago, there's a lot here that, that we, we won't cover in depth this morning, but it's, it's, it includes petition, it includes proclamation and instruction. So there, there's a lot going on here in his prayer. 
But he starts, again, with, his own, with, a, with a, uh, a prayer for his own glorification. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Now, the hour, and that's been a, uh, a phrase or, or a, a word, hour, that, that Jesus has used repeatedly. John's recorded for us in this gospel. Referring to this time. That is, referring to his suffering, death, resurrection, and exaltation. So, all the way up through chapter 12, it was viewed of as future. My hour, he would say things like, like he did in chapter 2. You know, when he spoke to his mother, she, they ran out of wine at the wedding and she wanted Jesus to do something. And he said, my hour has not yet come. And he, he said uh, something similar to his brothers when they were um, trying to get him to, uh, they were harassing him basically, but trying to get him to manifest himself to everybody. And uh, he, you know, he said, my hour is not, not come. Yours is always ready. <laughs> Interesting statement. Um, so he, he put it in the future. Then when you get to chapter 12, he begins to talk about it as being now. The hour has now come. And this is right after uh, we're told that some Gentiles come, had come hoping to, uh, to speak to Jesus. That's chapter 12, verse 20. Um, and then you get down to verse 23, chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus says in the present tense, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, 1224, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Um, so, there you have, from chapter 12, 23 forward, it's in the present tense. He's saying, the hour has now come. And, and it's the hour for Him to be glorified. Well, what does he mean by being glorified? When you think of the term glory or glorify, you know, there, there are probably different, different ways of, uh, you may think of looking at it. For example, we talk about glorify the Lord, and what we usually mean is something along the lines of praise Him. Right? You know, like, like, like we were singing earlier, we, we, we think of it that way in that context a lot of times. You know, let's glorify the Lord together, let's exalt Him, let's praise Him. And I think it's a, it's a, and that's that's appropriate, by the way. But it's a little little different nuance here. And so think of the term glory as as a noun, because Jesus is going to use it both ways here, as a noun and as a verb. Think of it as a noun, as referring to a manifestation of God's excellencies. I love that word, excellencies. <laughs> that's seemed to be one of the favorite words of <coughs> Jonathan Edwards. You read his writings, he talks a lot about the excellencies of God. And of course, what he's talking about is the attributes of God. You know, what, what makes up who God is? Characteristics is probably another synonym you might use. That's God's glory. So you think of things, for example, His, his excellencies would be things like His his goodness, His mercy, or His power, for example. 
fact, remember um, back in Exodus 33. I want to read just a, just a little bit of that. Moses prays to God to see His glory. He requests to see the glory of God. And what's significant here, and I, I think it, it helps us in understanding what Jesus is talking about in John 17, what's, what's significant here is how the Lord responds. Moses says, show me your glory. And then you get down to, uh, and I'm in Exodus 33, uh, and that, by the way, is verse 18. Please show me your glory. And then the Lord responds in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. Remember that as well because that, that's a um, common way in the Scripture of summing up who a person is. Not, not only God. It, it, it is it, you know, it's used repeatedly in reference to God. But even in reference to others, that's why you see God change people's names at times because He's going to change who they are. So, for example, you take uh, Jacob, He changes his name to Israel. Or you take Abram, God changes his name to Abraham. What does Abraham mean? Father of many nations, right? So it has to do, in other words, with who they are. J Jacob, Israel, one who wrestles with God. He, first he's known as the deceiver and then one who wrestles with God because he wrestled with God in a good sense. He wanted to be blessed by God. Abram becomes Abraham, father of many nations. So the name has to do with their whole makeup, who they are, what they're about. Jesus, Savior, right? And so it's the same with God. So God says, I'm going to, I'm going to proclaim my name. And it's, that's another way of saying, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. In other words, you're going to, Moses, you're going to get a glimpse. You ask to see the glory of God, you're going to get a glimpse of who God is, what He's like. So again, verse 19, Exodus 33, 19, the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Yahweh is the term there. I am. And uh, that's a good example of what I was just talking about. Abraham's called Abraham because he's the father of many nations. In other words, it describes who he is and how God was going to use him. Yahweh is the name of the Lord because it means I am. I am that I am. So it's a way of, of uh, describing God's self-existence, His absolute independence from anything. And he goes on to say here, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Mercy. So, in talking about showing His glory, all of His goodness, He makes reference as well to His own sovereignty and His own sovereign grace and mercy. So, when you think of the term glory, I would say it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a display 
of the excellence of God. It's God's goodness put on display in, in some way. Again, in the Old Testament, it was often, often in the form of the Shekinah glory, a lot of times a, a visible manifestation of the, of the power power of God. Or it would be you know, some demonstration like he demonstrated his power um, in bringing the plagues on Egypt, for example, but uh, in delivering his people, a, a display of the goodness and power, uh, sovereignty of God and so forth. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And in the verb form, think of it this way. I'm back to John 17 here. Because, again, in verse 1, Jesus says, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that your Son may glorify you. I'm going to use a, a, a just kind of help us here, a quote from... Uh, D.A. Carson describes it this way, the, the meaning uh, in this context, to be clothed, to be clothed with splendor. And I think we, we'll, we'll see why in a moment, why that, why that is fitting uh, in reference to Jesus. But to be clothed in splendor. Or um, when, when we speak of our glorifying God, um, which is going to also be covered in here. You might think of it in terms of just making known the splendor of God, right? Showing who God is, accurately representing God. And that's what Jesus is doing in His, in his, um, uh, in his life and now in His death. He's putting on display for all of His disciples, for all the world, as a matter of fact, um, the goodness of God. In fact, you go back, think back to Exodus 33 again. There Moses just gets a, 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 a kind of a backward view, a glimpse of the glory of God. But here you have God's glory revealed in fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. So that... For example, and this is just another passage to think about while we're thinking about this, um, the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus in Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That's Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So, so that when you see Jesus, you see the glory of God. You see, or to use the terminology from Exodus 33, all of the goodness of God is made known in the person of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus talks about glorifying the Father or uh, having glorified the Father, which He does do here, um, or even when He talks about us glorifying God, you can think about it in those terms. Now, let me go back to His glorification for a minute because we're going to come back to some of those things, Lord willing. The hour has come, glorify your Son. So again, the idea being that He would be clothed with splendor. Now, think about this. Here Jesus is, as I just pointed out, uh, in the flesh, 
and he is perfectly representing the glory of God. He's, he's perfectly showing God's, the truth about who God is and God's character because he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his person or stamp of his image. But he himself is not um, enjoying, I guess be a way of expressing it, he himself is not enjoying the glory that he has known throughout eternity as God. Because in Philippians 2, right, Paul explains that he laid aside his glory. He took on the form of a servant, Paul says, meaning he became a human being. So Paul says in Philippians 2, though, though he existed in the form of God, he was fully God, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. So he laid aside his glory. He emptied himself of his glory. So from all eternity past, from all eternity past, Jesus existed in glory. In the, in the full, full display of splendor and majesty. With everything that goes with that. In fact, we, we already saw in, in chapter 12, the, the writer here, John, refers to the experience of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, I beheld the Lord high and lifted up. Train of his robe, fill the temple. There again, you've got a, a, a way of, of God's glory being manifest and expressed. And there were beasts around him crying, or the, the seraphim rather, crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And we're told here in chapter 12 that that was Jesus. It was the Lord that Isaiah saw. So there he is in his pre incarnate state in full splendor. But now here he is, having emptied himself, taken on the form of a human being. Here he is in flesh. That's John 1.14. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So he's laid his glory Aside, And again, if you think of glory in terms of being clothed with splendor, then it's as though he disrobed. He took the robe of splendor, the clothing of splendor and majesty, off for a season so that he could come clothed in flesh to live the righteousness that you and I are incapable of living in our behalf, He did that on our behalf, and to die the death that you and I are incapable of dying, that is, a death that atones for our, our sin, for the totality of our sin, He came to do that, and then to rise again, conquering death. And he had to become a human being to do that. He had to lay aside, not His divinity, it's not that He's any less God, but he laid aside his glory. 
So His majesty and splendor while He's walking around as a human being is not fully evident. It's veiled as it were so that people probably passed Him on the street and it was just like passing any other human being. I mean, there, there was probably nothing about him that, that stood out, you know, physically. He didn't have like some of these old paintings that you see where he's got the, the aura or the, the halo. You know, there's no mention of anything like that in the Bible. He just looked like any other person. All right? So he, he laid his glory aside. But now he's praying to be glorified. Father... The hour has come. Glorify Your Son. The idea is that He would once again be clothed with splendor so that when payment, atonement is made, when payment is made for our sin, and when He rises again, when He ascends to the right hand of the Father, He is restored to the glory that He had previously. Again, verse 1. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Secondly, the glorification of the Father. And I, I want to consider something in particular here that I think Jesus is um, getting at here. Not only with Himself, but, but with us in glorifying God. It's the means. You know, how did He do it? Or how, how is God glorified? So, first He prays for His own glorification. Father, glorify Your Son. Now He says that the Son, and I'm still in verse uh, 1 here, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, now let me just say, that's, that's, that's the ultimate. Even when, when Jesus spoke of His own glorification, which is the ultimate expression of, of the glory of God, the splendor and majesty of God, all of God's goodness, ultimately expressed in the person of Jesus Christ, especially in um, His hour of shame. Isn't that a, an irony, a paradox? That in that hour of shame, when He's crucified, in that same hour is when He is most glorified because that's when His goodness, His mercy, His power is on, it's in its greatest display. It's in that suffering and death that He led many sons to glory. It's in that moment of apparent defeat that He was actually triumphing over sin and all the powers of hell. So now He says, glorify, uh, glorify Your Son so that the Son may glorify You. So in all that that He's doing in His own glorification, it's... It's with the purpose of bringing glory to the Father. Glorify your Son so that. In other words, the reason Jesus is saying, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. 
He knows in His own glorification, the, the ultimate end is going to be that God the Father is glorified. So in the display of Jesus' glory, which again is, 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 is nothing other than the glory of God, right? Because He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His person or uh, of His character. That, that's who He is. So in the display of His own glory, the goodness of God is on display. God is glorified. God, that is, God is shown to be great. God is shown, remember what He said to Moses? I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. So in the hour of Jesus' own glorification, when He is put to death for our sins, the goodness of God is made manifest for the world to see. It's on display. It's on display in the person of Jesus Christ. So He says, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Now, I want to get a little more specific here on how Jesus does that, or really just following Him and what He says here as He gets a little more specific. Look at verse 4. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now that, uh, I think, is a significant point. And, and, it, and it's one that, uh, it's a theme that, that, uh, that gets played out through the New Testament. Jesus glorifies the Father through obedience. Obedience. Mission, you could say, mission accomplished. I have glorified you on earth. How? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Think for a moment um, back to chapter 6. In verse 39. Verse 38. Verse 38 and 39. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up at the last day. Now, now when he says that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, he's talking about people. People. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And he, uh, he makes reference to that over here in, in uh, John 17. John 17, verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. And by the way, that little phrase is, is, uh, appears several times in his prayer here in, in uh, 17. And sometimes it's worded differently, but the idea of, of uh, people being given, certain people being given to him is repeated uh, over and over and again in this prayer. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Notice what he says here. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction 
that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now that's a reference to Judas Iscariot. So in John 6, he says, This is the Father's will, that of all he's given me, I should lose nothing. And what he's saying over in his prayer in John 17 is mission accomplished. (laughs) Mission accomplished. I haven't lost one, Father. I've glorified you on the earth by accomplishing what you've given me to do. So the Father is, is glorified in the obedience of Jesus, obedience that takes Him all the way to the cross. In fact, let me just give you a couple. Uh, I've made a, already made two or three references at least to uh, Philippians 2. Uh, let me go there for a moment because it also brings out this aspect. Um, earlier I referred to verse 6, he, uh, Philippians 2.6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That uh, literally there, the, the, uh, the Greek phrase means uh, word, rather. It's a word in the Greek. It means he emptied. He emptied himself. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Paul in Philippians goes on to talk about his exaltation because of that. Because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, he accomplished what he came to do. So, Jesus says, The hour has come, Father, glorify your Son. And the idea is that Um, He would go to the cross and die. This is the purpose for which He came. Back in chapter 12, He states that plainly. And He's going to do that because that moment in time is the greatest expression of the glory of God on display. His, his goodness, His character, in His mercy and grace in atoning for the sins of His people through the substitutionary death of Jesus at Calvary. That's the greatest display of the glory of God or display of His goodness and mercy. And He does that, why? To bring glory to the Father. That is to show how great the Father is. And so there's a little bit of, a, of, a, of an analogy, right? And you think about God showing His power and bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt. Oh, that was pointing towards something. That deliverance looked forward to a greater deliverance where God would demonstrate His power by bringing all of His own out of the bondage of sin through the outpouring of His wrath, not on the nation of Egypt this time, but on His own Son on the cross. And in that, God is glorified because His goodness is on display. His greatness and power on display. His sovereignty. Remember what He says 
to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And Paul picks that up in Romans 9. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardens. And Paul is, is, is expounding there on, on uh, the events with Moses and Pharaoh. And Jesus is saying, that's been accomplished here. All that you've given me, Father, I've kept, I've guarded. <laughs> Last point. The glorification of God in His people. Or you could say it this way. You know, we had the glorification of Jesus. Secondly, the glorification of the Father in the obedience of the Son. And thirdly, we could say this, the glorification of God through the obedience of His people. Now, I'm going to have to summarize a lot of verses here, so I'm not going to read through them all again, but uh, to try to point out a couple of places here. Uh, if you look back in verse 9, John 17, 9, first He's praying for the disciples there present. I'm praying for them that is, the ones that the Father has given him. I am not praying for the world. Notice that. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. I am glorified in them. Now, a little further down, um, verse 20, this is where you and I come in. Still, still up, up to this point, um, in fact, about, from about verse 6 on, he's praying for his disciples. And now in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, this is what I was talking about earlier. If one of those things, if you stop and think about it, it's astounding. First of all, when Jesus is facing the hostility that he's about to face, he's praying for his disciples. But then on top of that, he's not only praying for those who were present with him there that night, but his thoughts go forward in time and he's praying for you and I. <laughs> it's the only reason that you and I or saved and stay saved is because of the intercession of the Savior. I think I mentioned this before, but it reminds me of his words to, to Peter, um, which we're yet to get to. But uh, he, he says, I, I prayed for you, Peter. Satan has desired to sit you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith fail not. In other words, he's given a, a causal thing there. Why, isn't your, why doesn't your faith fail, Peter? Because I prayed for you. That's why. I prayed for you so that your faith does not fail. And that's what he's doing here. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So anyone who comes to faith through the word of the apostles, and by the way, that's every single Christian, Jesus says, I'm praying for them as well that they may all, verse 21, that they may all be one. Now, here's, here's where I'm picking up on um, us. 
displaying the glory of God, again, to use the noun form, us displaying the glory, and I know that sounds, uh, you know, I mean, just, what? (laughs) Yeah, us, us, reflecting the glory of God. And then secondly, us glorifying, verb, verb form, us glorifying the Father. Okay? This is where I'm getting that idea in these verses. Look at what he says, verse 21. That they may all be one. All the disciples, the disciples that were there present with him that night, plus you and I who have come to faith through their testimony. Verse 21. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now look at this, verse 22. And I've got just a couple of things here. I'm going to try to do this quickly because we're essentially out of time. Verse 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Look, Jesus, and I don't know, we could probably spend months on this. Jesus talks about us having, um, or rather being one as He is one with the Father. So He's saying there's a a similarity there, there's a likeness, and I would say it's it's not exactly the same thing, but it's, it's like the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. So he talks about us being one as he is one with the Father. He talks about us having the glory. He says, the, Father, the glory that you gave me, Father, I have given to them. And then he goes back to the unity in the, in the latter verses. Um, and then he gives a reason for it, which I want to come to quickly here in a moment. So, but, but those things are mind-boggling. You think about having, having unity like the Father and the Son or displaying the glory like the Son displays the glory of the Father. That's what he's saying. So in other words, we, we have been given the glory. Again, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Notice the emphasis he keeps, he's putting on this. That they may become perfectly one. So in other words, unity, first of all, being, being united to Christ, union with Christ is the source of all of this. It doesn't exist outside of union with Christ. But now that we are united to Christ, there's a, a, a mutual unity among believers that He wants to mature and become perfect. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am to see My glory that You have given Me because You loved Me before the foundation of the world. Now, what does it mean for us to glorify the Father? In other words, how is, how, how is the Father glorified through His people? And here's what I think Jesus is getting at. And I'm, I'm basing this on, on um, what we have talked about for 
weeks, I guess months now, as we've been moving through John's Gospel. There has been a huge emphasis, for example, just, just um, recently in, uh, in chapter 12. Um, let me go back for just a second. Chapter 12. I know it's here somewhere. I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And he talks about us having His Spirit. In fact, we could say it this way, the presence of God dwelling in us through the Spirit. So, so we're united to Him which enables us to express or display His glory. Now again, you think of His glory in terms of His goodness. That is, it's, it's His self-disclosure, his, the, the, the expression of His character, who He is, what He's like, what He's about. So Jesus says, I'm praying for them that they may all be one. That's, that's another way of saying the same thing he was saying back in chapter 15. Love one another as I have loved you. In other words, he's talking about a, a mutual love between believers. A unity. A unity that reflects a spiritual reality, a spiritual unity with Christ and with one another. And in that, God is glorified. Um, and of course, we, we've seen that as well. In fact, I read part of it from chapter 12 just a, a little bit ago. Um, and and God, talking about God being glorified. Jesus was first referring to Himself. He says, uh, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it can't bear fruit. And then He goes on in His discourse to, uh, to talk about us uh, bearing fruit. In fact, in John, in John 15, we talked a great deal about that. Uh, our unity with Him, unity with the vine, and that's the only way of bearing fruit and bringing glory to, the, glory to God. Now, all of this, and here's my final point here we can dismiss, but all of this is for a reason. In other words, Christ is praying for unity among His people and that God's glory be displayed in the unity among His people for a reason. To accomplish a purpose. You can go back to verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, now here's the purpose clause, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And look again in verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that, purpose clause, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
So the Father is glorified in our loving one another, our living in obedience to Him, to the great commandment we see in, in uh, John 15, loving one another so that the world may know the reality of Christ and that He's sent from God, and so that the, to put it sharp, so that the world may see the glory of God, right? So that they may know the truth about who God is, His, His goodness and His mercy. Verse 26, I made known to them your name. In other words, who you are. Everything about you, who you are. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. That's what he's looking for. Operation of his love in his people that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So he's saying, Father, I have perfectly represented you and made you known to them so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. So God is glorified in the glorification of Christ, that is, in His death, resurrection, His atoning for our sins. And Christ was glorified in that. That was His finest hour, so to speak. When He put on display for all of the world His own grace and mercy. And God is glorified in His people when we do the same, when we mimic Christ, when we display the love and goodness of God to the world. Would you stand, please? We'll just dismiss with a word of prayer. And uh, Lord willing, see you back here at 4 o'clock. And uh, we'll just look for more of the Lord's blessings then. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for uh, again for gathering here th- us here this morning. Lord, we thank You for making Yourself known to us. Thank You for Your goodness for Your mercy. Thank You for loving us and expressing that love by sending Your own Son to die in our place. Father, now we pray, empower us that we may go out and live in such a way that would reflect Your goodness, Your mercy, Your grace so that the world may know the reality of You. Again, we thank You and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.